I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I offer a handful of reflections and observations from the past week, some mundane ones and some less mundane. I recommend a great book on the rise of autocracy and the decline of democracy, and I have a conversation with my friend Steve Watkins about misinformation, conspiracy theories, fascism, and a number of other interesting topics. So just a couple of observations to start this episode and a couple of mundane ones to begin. Uh, first of all, the soundtrack of my week has largely been dominated by uh, random Radiohead songs and uh, a lot of Lord Huron. Lord Huron is one of my favorite bands. Uh, I've got several albums out, uh, Native, Michigander, and uh, just absolutely gorgeous music. So about three or four years ago, for my spring break week, um, first week of March, I drove from Grand Rapids to Phoenix uh, to take uh, take take in a couple of spring training games, do some hiking, and just to get out of town. I mean, I was it was a long year, it was a busy year that year for me, and so uh, driving out west, those long stretches of just a lonely road was it was I don't know complete therapy. And Lord Huron was like the soundtrack of that trip. And um, we're in the middle of a, a Michigan winter right now. It's not been so bad. It's been an absolutely gorgeous sunny day today as I record this. Um, but I've kind of gotten out the Lord Huron, and it just brings me to a happy place. Um, he explores some sometimes dark themes in his music, but I just I love it. Uh, just kind of soaring music great rhythms. And uh, anyway, that's been the soundtrack of my week. Lord Huron, check him out. Also, a correction from last week, I talked about uh, comparatives in grammar, comparative adjectives, but I called them superlatives. And uh, I just want to make that correction. Comparatives are those terms like clearer or purer or truer uh, or broader, uh, terms that are available uh, instead of having to use expressions like more broad or that statement was more clear. And um, that's it's completely fine. But as somebody who is always at work to improve my own writing and uh, to improve my own uh, understanding of things, I pass ever so severe judgment on myself when I misspeak. And um, I always silently but very definitely note it when others don't take advantage of the complete range of grammatical options available. I'm partly being facetious. I'm largely being facetious as I say all this, uh, but there's a part of my personality that is very fussy about verbal facility. And um, I, this actually could be a very, very extended thought because, and I've wanted to talk about this in the past, but I love language. I, I love language so much. Uh, because of its ability, it's sort of the art form that I work with. I write, and um, I do some talking, but I, I write. And one of the things I love about language is that it does offer the possibility of penetrating into the truth of reality um, deeply 
and then being able to capture that reality with words to then come back out and um, portray that reality or speak of that reality creatively so that uh, we can capture it and so that we can share it, so that we can invite others into understanding it and exploring it and experiencing it and enjoying it and being blessed by it and um, and to have it become a life-giving reality. I have no artistic skills with drawing or art like, um, you know, Sarah and our, our children are just, they are very gifted in this way. I bring none of those gifts to this family or to the world, but I, but I can use words and I love using words. And um, sort of one kind of funny side part to that is just sort of the fussiness uh, over, I don't know, not using words rightly. There are um, there are better and worse ways of expressing things, and I just I just blanch when I um, when I hear poor expressions, like when people say, "I get this all the time in writing." Or someone may speak in this way and say something like, um, you know, that book that John just referenced. That's that's just a hijacking of language. More proper to say, um, the book to which John just referred, instead of using the verbal expression available, using the word refer, uh, some folks are tempted to turn reference into a verb. Or the overuse of the word impact, or even just the blasphemous expression impactful. Just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Anyway, here I go. I'm getting all worked up. But I, I um anyway, I just think there's there's something beautiful about language. And once you start exploring the possibilities of language, just um kind of degraded uses of language become somewhat offensive. And I don't, um, you know, I'm very careful not to pass judgment on people for things that are important, but I do take a certain relish in passing silent judgment on people when they don't use words as well as they could. As I said, I'm being largely facetious, but there's a window into my very fussy side. I got um, a bunch of requests uh, from people in pastoral ministry or church leadership positions for my book on Paul, on Paul's pastoral ministry. It's called Power and Weakness, and I was very happy to send a bunch of copies of those out. So um, I've got a few left. If you're in, if you're in ministry, if you're a pastor, uh, I wrote this book for you. I want this to be in the hands of people that are um, serving, loving God's people. And so if you send me an email, I'll, I'll be very, very happy to send one out. Like I said, I've just got a few of those left. I'd be absolutely gratified and thrilled um, if it helped to sort of shape your imagination and help you understand the contours of ministry as Paul speaks of it. I'm happy to serve pastors in this way. I may have said this before in here, I can't remember, um, but I, I'm, I could never be a pastor. I don't feel called to pastoral ministry. I did a form of pastoral leadership and ministry at one point that was far more oriented by sort of team leadership or, or team service. Um, but I, it's pastoring is lonely and it's hard and it's tough. And um, I've heard from a number of pastors recently about the difficulties of pastoring in this era, and I completely get it. I completely get it. 
and I have a lot of respect for people who are pastors. In my teaching, I uh, we critically examine the character of the church. We do a lot of critical work, not having a critical spirit, but critical analysis of the dynamics of culture and the, 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 the dynamics of church culture and of pastoral ministry and of, of the temptations in pastoral ministry. And um, we do all that just in service to a clearer, an ever clearer conception of what it is to be in ministry, to pastor, to shepherd God's people. Um, it's never done with sort of um, condescension or um, passing judgment or an arrogance. Um, but you know, having said all that, what I'm trying to say is that um, I am delighted to play a role of equipping and serving and giving resources to people who are in ministry, understanding that I'm not the one speaking authoritatively or telling them what to do, but offering resources, because that's something that I just, I'm not cut out for it. And I have a lot of respect for people who play those roles uh, of service and of responsible care uh, for communities. That's, that's just, um, it's huge. So I'm happy to offer this, uh, this resource. And if, uh, if you're not a pastor, check it out. Um, I loved writing it. I honestly, it was hard to write. It took me a long time uh, to sort of settle on how it was going to look. And um, I, I don't know how much I wrote and then just tossed. And my friend Michael Thompson, who was working with the publisher at that time, is now with another publisher with um, the books published with Erdman's. We were out to lunch and I just you know told him the difficulties that I was having. And he offered me just some wonderful encouragement. And um, I think after that, it's kind of funny, but it took like maybe 10 months to write. It didn't take that long. Uh, you know, Once I sort of settled on how it was going to go, it was easy to sort of execute. And um, because so many of those things I'd been teaching for so long and I'd been thinking about, um, but if you write or you produce any kinds of art, sometimes it's really difficult to get past, to just get started. Um, and what the conception of what you have in mind as far as the finished product can sort of stand over you and just make you feel paralyzed. And that's how I felt. I just thought, I, I'm trying to get this to the finish point and I just can't even get it started. But once Michael... Through some wonderful encouragement, uh, helped me to see how to get it moving. Uh, I was able to do that. So anyway, it's out, it's done, and um, I, I really love how it's turned out. It's it's um, a fairly short book. I wanted it to be just sort of digest digestible chapters of about five to six thousand words, and because uh, I have a short attention span, and I don't know, I write for people with short attention spans, I guess. Um, so it's not a long book, but. It's it's everything. I felt like I just put my heart and soul into it, and you know, left it all out on the field. I want to tell you about a book. This is not a paid advertisement. I just really enjoyed this book. It's by Anne Applebaum, and it's called "The Twilight of Democracy: The Seductive Lure." of authoritarianism and is published by Doubleday. Now I referred to this book some time ago and I called it The Decline of Democracy. So this is also a correction, The Twilight of Democracy. 
And I just thought it was brilliant. And uh, Applebaum is a journalist. Uh, she's lived in the States. She's lived in London. She's lived in different parts of Europe. And uh, she spent the last number of years living in Poland and has experienced and seen up close the rise of authoritarian governments in Hungary and in surrounding uh, countries. And she's been able to see from afar, but also up close at times because of her travels to the States, uh, the rise of sort of fascist, a fascist mood or authoritarian, the authoritarian style of the previous president. Uh, she's been able to see that from afar and up close. And to, she's been able to see the similarities um, that are going on in American culture to what are happening in European climates where these same dynamics have resulted in actual fascists and autocrats coming to power. She has a very clear vision of um, what Russia is doing under Vladimir Putin to sow misinformation globally and the effects that that has had uh, in American culture. And she has a great way of talking about um, how resentments are cultivated in cultures uh, towards uh, minorities, towards immigrants, um, towards even immigrant uh, cultures that are non-existent, like in Hungary and Poland, uh, tremendous uh, resentments are cultivated about uh, Muslim immigrants when there har are hardly any in those countries. So really fascinating uh, discussions. And I think that books like this are really important uh, to understand what's happening in our larger culture so that we can understand the sources that are informing the imaginations of our churches. Our churches are cultures that um, are supposed to have imaginations shaped by uh, a life-giving vision of being a generous, um, enemy-loving community. And uh, that cultivates the practices that go along with that. But there are loads of messages going on in our culture through media, uh, through social media, uh, through popular figures, um, that are actually cultivating uh, sentiments and ways of feeling and seeing and hoping and fearing that run contrary to the gospel. And I think it's important to have a clear vision of that, to be able to understand the dynamics that are being generated uh, so that we can see how it is that the gospel speaks directly to those things, uh, like the absolute fatality um, of having hearts cultivated by anger and resentment. Um, Applebaum has some, uh, some discussions about how it is that demagogues, demagogic figures who are authoritarian and end up being fascistic, um, but such figures play on uh, sort of suspicions of far-off elites that um, are disrespecting you, and um, how resent she goes into how resentments are cultivated towards these elites. Um, and how those resentments are then used by demagogues uh, to rise to power. Now, it's not, I have no idea who elites are. Maybe I'm one. Maybe you're one. Uh, maybe there are elites uh, on the coasts. Who knows? But whether or not elites are looking down their noses at us, the question I think uh, is important is whether or not we can even become the kind of people that allow our hearts to grow with resentment toward anybody. And um, that's the work that we have to do as Christian people. And that's the work that I uh, seek to carry out. And 
to sort of see the field of play very clearly to see where our work needs to be done is immensely helpful. And Applebaum's book does that just brilliantly. She weaves in and out of sort of uh, the, the global story, um, how this has, how these larger moves are actually affecting families and relationships. She talks about a dinner party um, at the turn of the 20th to the 21st centuries in 1999 that she enjoyed with a bunch of friends and sort of recounts the friends that she still has and the friends that no longer will talk to her. Um, and then traces sort of what happened what happened to all these friendships? What happened culturally and how did all of those dynamics affect different people emotionally and imaginatively to sort of take them down different paths? It's an important book because I think we are, um, we're headed for some tough times. We're headed for some difficult times. And I believe it's better to do that with our eyes open rather than uh, denying reality. So the book is Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. The authors and Applebaum, and as ever, get it from an independent bookstore. So I dedicated my book, Power and Weakness, to my friend Steve Watkins because I love him. And uh, his and my thinking developed with regard to so many things uh, having to do with ministry and life in general, friendships, relationships, um, you know, I don't know how to live in this world, being Christian. So many of the, the big questions our thinking has developed similarly. And I know for myself, I could not have sort of arrived at uh, a lot of the, the ways of thinking that I have found life-giving and fruitful if it were not for being in conversation with Steve over the years. Uh, we met almost 25 years ago. We were in seminary, and uh, we talk a little bit about that. We went to uh, the master's seminary together to where we met, and um, it was a very conservative, in many ways oppressive and dysfunctional sort of uh, um, oppressive environment. And um, that caused a lot of, uh, I don't think I could have survived it, and I, Steve might say the same. Um, and sort of come out with my sanity, at least I think I have it, without having him as a, a routine conversation partner. Uh, we, over over a couple years, uh, you know, ran together in the mornings, early mornings, and uh, just kicked around so many things and have remained in conversation uh, in the ensuing years. Steve's had a, a wild and interesting life. He had been a Navy SEAL many, many years ago. He went to seminary in 2000, uh, no, 97. That's where we met. When we met, he graduated and went into pastoral ministry for just under a decade uh, before then going to do a PhD at the University of Louisville and now um, teaches and lives on a farm about 80 miles south of Louisville. And uh, we see each other a couple times a year and uh, it's been a while because of this pandemic, but uh, we've kept in touch. So I bring you this conversation. The audio is okay. It wasn't great. Uh, my friend Corbin did a lot to sort of clean it up and uh, did some work on it. And I'm very grateful to you, Corbin, for that. Um, so here's my conversation with Steve. We kicked around issues of um, all the stuff that's kind of up and running in our culture and uh, did some recounting of experiences and a little bit of talk about how our minds 
uh, were transformed over the years about pastoral ministry. Anyway, enough of intro. Here it is. Hey, man. Hey, what's happening? What's going on? Oh, another day in paradise, chopping wood and doing winter projects. I was going to say, where, like in the life cycle of the farm, like what's going on right now? So like here in Michigan this morning, it was like 15 degrees. Everything's yeah. frozen over. You know, yeah. you don't want to be outside, even though I get my long walk in every morning. But like where, where are things at for you right now? Uh, yeah, it's pretty cold here, too. It was 18 uh, when we woke up this morning. Jeez. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, so I always call them winter projects. So all the stuff that I, I, I need to do where when there's no ticks and snakes and all the stuff I'd like to avoid. So <laughs> cutting firewood, brush, uh, getting deep in the woods and uh, burning, you know, like uh, limbs that have come down and just clearing. It's just stuff like stuff like that that like in the in the summer it's like a project not just yeah. the garden yeah what are the i mean how do the dogs deal with the cold i mean did, will they join you outside or they just kind of try to stick close to the house yeah they stick close to the house uh, they like going out and just they love the snow they go crazy just run in circles and scoop it up in their mouth so it's fun to watch them we just got some snow a couple days ago but um, yeah, it's so it's so cold. They, they about fifteen minutes, man, and they're staring at me at the door and come in and crash out by the wood burning stuff. Yeah, that's hilarious. When I'm out walking, I see some dogs that I mean, they just seem like they want to tear into the snow and just have a load of fun and like <laughs> pulling their their human walker, you know, lunging yeah. after them. And then there's other dogs where it's just like, what are we doing out here? This is yeah, nuts, though. Totally. Right, and I think the, the coat has a lot to do with it because Hermes does better than the new one I got because he's he's just got a thicker coat. Yeah. She just cold quick. Hey, I get it. I don't know if I ever, after we moved from Chicago, well, after we moved to L.A., I don't know if I ever recovered, like, my, no. you know, useful, my being used to the Midwest deep freeze. I don't know, man. Right, right. about now, I'm just like, get me to Phoenix. What am I doing here? Yeah, absolutely. Are you going out for uh, spring training? Um, I don't know. It's it's actually up in the air right now whether there's going to be spring training. Like oh, they've not right. even announced the schedule. They don't know if there's going to be like a 162 game schedule, full regular season, if it's going to be a truncated regular season, whether or not they're going to do spring training. And like Arizona apparently has told like baseball clubs, like don't even think about it, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. Not worth it. I'm almost thinking of taking a trip. If I can get vaccinated, I might take a trip out there first week of March because when that time of year rolls around, I'm just not in a good place. And I just I need <laughs> yeah. some sunshine. I need to be walking outside with shorts on. Totally. So yeah. you know, Alanda Botton wrote about that. There's this phenomenon where uh, people, uh, you're, it, particularly Brits, would go to the Spanish Riviera and French Riviera and Greece and stay there for a prolonged amount of time. And when they came home, they found they were really struggled with depression and all this because it's cold and rainy and dark. Oh, totally. And yeah, yeah it's just but, gray and miserable and like dreary. Yeah. Yeah. There's a particular beauty to that. But and, and and there's a wonderful beauty to winters in Michigan, but it's like after a while it just beats you down. Yeah. You need some variety. 
totally. especially if you live in Britain, you know, there's none of the food has any flavor. <laughs> so you go for like a top it off with COVID and nothing to Oh, seriously, yeah. Everybody should be can't drink your way out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to talk about uh how like over the last 20, 21 years or so since you and I, you know, you and I got out of seminary 2000, we were right in, you know, in a mega church ministry context, you know, big show, pre- yeah. prestige, you know, power. I mean, everything, of course, is oriented around like, you know, male power, the power of the preacher and the pastor and all that kind of stuff. But, yeah. um, you know, as I thought back on the shaping of, you know, uh, the Paul book, Power and Weakness, I was thinking about how, like, I don't, I don't think that I could have had the courage to sort of express what I was discovering in Paul after we left, you know, when I started my PhD in 2000, I don't, um, unless you and I were in conversation, right? I don't think that I could have had the courage to like really say what I was discovering. Like, cause it's almost like you and I went through a transformation in our conception of ministry in the, in the same way at the same time and in conversation, but it was almost like, we had to sort of back into it thinking like, we're sort of discovering this, but are we out of our heads or what? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just wondering for you, like what are some of the key moments of transformation? I remember you had that. I mean, Kent Baptist seemed to be a big part of that. Yeah. And you're starting yeah, there. that. It was huge. It was huge because, well, part, partly it, it was tremendously humbling. I mean, tremendously humbling. And, and it was that weakness that you talk about in the book that um, you want to you want to follow in the footsteps of sacrifice and self-sacrificial love and these things that kind of roll off our tongues. But, man, when, when push comes to shove, they're uh, perfect. My phone's ringing. <laughs> oh, well, whatever. You know, there it's just really, uh, really a difficult difficult to to meet people right where they are and especially when we're coming from this kind of jaded idea of uh well you know the sign of success is how many people follow you and how much money you make and you know all that you know to, to now it just makes us it turns our stomach but you know that's all we really knew at that point yeah um but just the hard, the clash with reality um, really did it for me. You know, I, I remember, remember we went here in Nashville, we went to the SBL. Yeah, it was um, like 2000, that, I think, wasn't it? Uh, 2000. I had just graduated uh, with the MDiv and, and was, well, actually didn't even have a church yet. And you were headed, I think you were headed to St. Andrews. Yeah, I, I had just started. Right. And um, I remember I attended this, this, uh, a session with uh millard erickson yeah and um i didn't really know much about him other than that he was the big standard name among conservative evangelicals for as a systematic theologian and he was just winging it he was just like i think he was nearing retirement or just retired and he was just reflecting on his life in ministry and it was probably the most helpful panel i've ever been to <laughs> you go to these panels and you you I didn't even understand half of them. Um, oh yeah, but he just said, "Yeah, I just want to teach teach a few things I've learned through 
through my years of being a theologian and, and, and a church participant. And so he, a couple things that stuck was he said, just, he goes, you're going to come out of seminary with all kinds of jacked up ideas, basically. I don't think he used that word. <laughs> but, he said, but he said, just let lay people will knock the obtuse edges off of you. They'll shape you into, if you can hang with it and be honest, they'll, they'll, oh boy, that's what happened. And I, every time I wanted to bristle up or resist, you know, or get, get into what Eugene Peterson calls bulldozer spirituality, I, I just had to back, I remembered Erickson's comments and I'm just back up and say, man, I need to, there's something I need to learn here, not, not just go <laughs> forcing my way on the world. Yeah. And it, it has its own sort of beauty, you know. Um, Seriously. Um, so, the, the yeah, a lot of the – and these are, these are country folks. You know, I remember just going through so many trials at seminary never um, prepared me for. Like one guy, uh, he said, I, I'd really like to learn the Bible. He was a mechanic. And um, I was like, well, here, here's a good translation. You know, I just gave him one. He kind of sheepishly looked at me, and he's like, well, I, I can't read. Wow. And I was like, holy cow. So, you know, got got a Bible on CD. But, you know, it's just all these things that, you know, really knock out the arrogance. And, we, you know, the seminary, I've probably told, we've talked about this through the ages, but, you know, I, seminary was honestly one of the times when I had, I, I had the most arrogance and ego and real hatefulness within me. And yeah. And I remember that because I had these crazy thoughts that would jump into my head that I could not, I, they were, they were, they were fearful thoughts, like, like murderous thoughts. I'm like, where is this coming from? This is not me. I mean, even, you know, when I served as a seal, I didn't have anything like that in my mind. I was a trained seal, you know, I'm like, what is going on here? It just, and the moment I got out in the ministry and just started trying to love this flock, it was just, you know tattered and beat to pieces then it started to, to go away you know all that that bad i don't know what you call it just bad thoughts um, no i think there's something especially the place that you and i were in yeah, yeah there was it was uh in many ways a toxic environment filled with a bunch of you know i don't know male dominated striving and questing you know that that environment of like power accumulation and prestige accumulation, it has, it creates an ethos that has emotional consequences for individuals. Yeah. Like, um, you know, you're always competing with other people and you're always looking for uh, someone else to fail so that you can take advantage. I mean, there's just not, it's a really, it can be a really destructive environment. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's one of the things I love about my current context with my colleagues. It's like, we just feel like just happy as clams to be there and it's just fun and we like each other. And, you know, uh, our relationships with students are really collegial instead of like yeah. a huge hierarchy where you're trying to just kind of, you know, yip like an eager dog to get a professor's attention and get some validation or something like that. Right. But I don't know, man, that was just a that totally toxic environment for you and me and a lot of other people yeah um yeah i just heard a, a total side note i just listened to a podcast the other day with with samir wow. where he was talking about that 
these very same dynamics. I mean, it was really, I've been reading so much and listening to a lot about fascistic and autocratic um, government, you know, dynamics. Um, That was like a fascistic corporate environment. Yeah. You know, like it was a cult of personality and it generates just a lot of bad vibes among everybody. Yeah. You know, absolutely. You, you, it's just destructive. Yeah. You become vested in an authority figure with the hope of having all of your wildest dreams come true and all of your problems solved. The problem is the world's way more messy than that. I mean, those are the dynamics of cults and conspiracies and fundamentalism and tons of stuff that, I mean, it's, (laughs) that's another thing Erickson said was, he said, you know, I've come to see in life that even when I'm looking at a biblical passage that nothing's a hundred percent this true and zero percent, you know, he's like, it's 90, 10, 80, 20, 65, 35, you know, it's not, it's, there's a lot of gray. There's a lot more gray than there is, you know, two plus two equals four. But we, we, as humans, we meaning making creatures, we want to, we want simplicity. And the more the world becomes just out of control, complex, and the data is just beyond any human ability to even, even wrap their head around, much less process. We feel, we feel the ground's being pulled out from under us. So we want, you know, we want something firm, something stable. Yeah. With clear lines and clear, clear, clear good guys, clear, bad guys, you know, clear, acceptable behavior, clear, unacceptable behavior. But yeah, exactly. It it just, the complex world won't allow for it. No, no. You know, you were uh, going back to like 2000, you had that opportunity to go to like some big old mega church and like your arrival at Kent Baptist was not like the plan. No, no, it wasn't at all. Yeah. You were headed for like Papi O'Daniel glory. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It it was just, I don't know. I I can't even like it. It's, it can't even pinpoint where, but you know, the other thing too is have the importance of having a good conversation partner like you and Frank and, and Dano and some of the others, you know, that you could be totally honest with. Yeah. You can just say, look, I'm losing it here. I think I'm losing my faith. Whatever the, the crisis is, and you can just confide in somebody and know they have your best. They just love you, and they're not going to judge you. They're not going to. And, man, that was, that was probably more important than anything, really. Yeah. That's one of the wonderful things about uh environments where like the ministry stakes are really low yeah like it fosters honesty it's like there's there's, you don't have the existential feeling that we cannot lose anything i mean it's like when you have that existential reality that like well if this all folds like whatever yeah i mean that's just a good place to be it's liberating oh totally is man hold on lightly to everything well i mean this is i mean all the i think the great wisdom traditions get this i think you know buddhism really nails it it's it's non-attachment don't don't cling on don't grip on so tight that if your little precious whatever fails that that's it you know because everything depends on it i mean buddha got that and you know i think there's a lot to these original thinkers I mean, the great ones, um, when they get things right, they usually get the same things right. (laughs) 
Yeah. But. Well, what's interesting is, um, yeah, I just had a conversation with a friend about this uh, the other day, is how much, like, historic Protestantism and certainly American Christianity has taken the cross and made it like the entrance, like the the thing that sort of gets you in, or it's a symbol of the, the Christian faith, but it doesn't really have a whole lot to do with a lot. But like on the pages of the Gospels and in Paul, it goes right to the heart of that self-preservation impulse. Yeah, like like that is the thing that the cross claims for communities and individuals. But like the bigger, like churches become organizations and they become like these kind of big and powerful and oppressive, you know, entities that you think this is, you know, we're getting somewhere. We are somebody. Right. This is this is something substantial. What you don't realize is now you can't afford to lose it. Now you actually have to think in terms of self-preservation. Right. And like the cross is just completely inconvenient. Oh, absolutely. Can't have any of that. <laughs> yeah. No, it makes for the worst. Yeah, just antic. It brings out the worst in everybody. It brings out the worst in everybody. Like pastors, church staffs, you know, I mean, people start, I don't know, that's just the source of a lot of fights. Yep. I don't know. That's a bad way to go. It's a world of pain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, Walter. What did, uh, like, in your own transformation in your thinking, you know, you went back into the chaplaincy at some point and yeah. I just remember talking with you and your encounters with like other, like other traditions yeah. and the faith yeah. traditions. I just, that just seemed to be really transformative. Yeah. 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 That was amazing time. It really was because um, you were part of an institutional ministry, one that I understood very well in my case, the Navy. And, um, um, and, and, and in some ways, it was really funny because I, here I am, a former combat SEAL, and, and you've got all these people fresh out of seminary that don't even know how to salute or say the Pledge of Allegiance. And yeah. they're like, <laughs> cats, man, and they, they're trying to learn how to wear their uniforms. It's like, man, this is hilarious. And they're, they're the farthest thing from a soldier. They're, they're chaplains, you know. So yeah. interesting group. But it started, you know. This uh, young um, imam came up to me. His name is, is Babale, was his last name. He was from Kuwait. He was born in Kuwait. And uh, he saw my uniform and everybody, I mean, it was weird because I'm just me. You know, I don't give a rip, but if I got to wear my uniform. So there's my jump wings and my seal trident and a rack of ribbons. And, you know, so everybody's like a little, even the instructors, they were trying to be all cool. We're like, wow. So I'm like, man, it's no big deal. But this guy comes up and says, uh, I just, you know, I was senior to him because I got commissioned as a lieutenant of 03. And he was just an ensign with a a one. And um, so in in the military culture, a a junior officer can never, well, it's it's improper for a junior officer to extend their hand to shake to a senior officer. It always has to be the senior officer that extends the handshake. Uh All this, all this stuff but anyway he so i i could sense he wanted to shake my hand and i I just extended my hand of course and shook and he said i just want to thank you he said i was a child when you liberated kuwait when your forces he wouldn't say me alone and because i had a southwest asian service and kuwaiti liberation medal he saw and he's like uh we were in a we were in a, a prisoner of war camp and my dad was preparing us all to be executed he was saying 
wow. if you never see us again, just, you know, and it was like, holy cow. And he said, um, if it wasn't for you guys, you know, I probably would be dead and my parents would be dead. And I was like, whoa. He was like, tears welling up in his eyes, thanking me. He's a Muslim <laughs> mom, you know, going off to minister to our Muslim troops because we have yeah. religion needs to be represented. That was a that was an interesting moment. And then um, I met the only Jewish rabbi there, uh, a, a woman who, um, Anne is her name, and she, she was uh, doing rabbinic studies at Hebrew Union College. So that's where I studied Hebrew before seminary, and that, that opened up a whole thing. And next thing you know, I found it really, the people that were on the outskirts, there was like the big core were all evangelicals, Baptists, you know, Methodists, you know, mainstream and evangelicals. And it was such a, it just started to seem so goofy to me. Um, and they were not, by and large, I'm not thinking of any individual, but by and large, there was no interesting conversations going on within the big evangelical group. It was all just kind of Applebee's culture. And uh, <laughs> you know, I'm like, man, I want to hang out with the moms and with the rabbi because they they had a really subtle sense of humor. They... <laughs> They could. Uh, they were very good conversationalists. They would always ask tons of questions, and half of their questions, I'm like, oh, good grief! I don't have an answer to that. Like, why do why do evangelicals do this? And that was uh, at, at the in the morning. We would have faith groups. We had to attend one, so I would always pick like the Muslim one or the the Jewish one, and I was with. It was just me and this uh, rabbi, and uh, the we were we were stuffed in this little closet of a room. And the big, the big, huge fellowship center was taken over by all the evangelicals. They were just, we were trying to read Torah, and they were just booming, uh, amazing grace. <laughs> and we just started oh, cracking up. We started laughing. Jeez. Like the religious equivalent of a, the loud American. Yeah, in fact, I, I saw the movie uh, As Good As It Gets recently with Larry David. It's a Woody Allen film. I hadn't seen it in a while. And he's got this, you know, he's with this young girl from the South and her mother, who's this evangelical type. Um, and she's like, well, it's New York. We want to do something fun. He said, well, why don't you try out the Holocaust Museum? <laughs> it's so, just so amazingly funny. But it, so Larry David, yeah, too. so exactly. Oh, you know, just not taking ourselves seriously. And then, you know, persecution and really the hard work. The only way you can survive it is with humor and with realizing that, you know, we're not we're not really that important at the end of the day. We're just here to, you know, walk each other home, as Anne Lamott says. And you can just let go of all that goofiness. But um, those are some big ones right there. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, it seems like so much of evangelical corporate life is making sure that you are staying well within the right. lines. Right. You know what I mean? Instead of like this positive exploration of the fullness of our humanity and human experience and getting close to the edge and I don't know, exploring. I mean, this is why, you know, among evangelical culture, we don't produce any good, you know, literature or art yeah. or music. I mean, because it's like you can't exploration and experimentation is right. dangerous. Whereas in other traditions, you know, there's the allowance for exploring quite yeah. a bit with regard to literature or literary themes, music and art and all the rest. Just honesty. Don't, don't you think that's what it comes down to? Just 
a basic yeah. freedom of, to be honest, let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. And it seems to me that like having, um, aims and interests prevents mm-hmm. that. Like if, if we're aiming to kind of build some kind of like public credibility or, you know, which we might call a public witness or right. something like that, or if we're aiming to like build a movement or something like that, it's like you, you have to be so interested in a public image that's respectable and honesty becomes inconvenient. Sure. Where, I mean, even though it's like, that's the one thing that we're all looking for, you know, to just be able to be honest about like, I, I was talking to someone the other day that she had had a miscarriage. She's expecting a baby. She had had a miscarriage and she was talking about how she's found it so mm. difficult to find people to talk to about her yeah. experience. Yeah. You know, it's like you, you got to just kind of keep quiet Gosh. about this. Yeah. But it's like in the church, it's should be the one place we can come, you know, to sort of open up, be embraced, be welcomed, right. be listened to be validated you know listen to others and protected you know yeah, yeah valued. totally yeah no absolutely all right to totally switch gears you and i have had so many discussions about expertise going in this direction and that direction i mean exploring a lot of different kind of themes but i was thinking recently like you and i have had gone back and forth on text i I had a conversation with a colleague the other day about this. Uh, a bunch of people have written to me. This is like a big deal, like having friends and family members just, I don't know, hoodwinked or taken in by like conspiracy theory thinking or by speculative fear-mongering news sources that that are just kind of making them think the craziest stuff. Right. And it seems like, there's a there's an expertise angle on this like you said the other day um like the range of literature that you read there's some correlation between that and how not gullible you are with regard to like this or that news source and like some other folks that just they don't read widely and how gullible they actually end up being i don't know this is such a head-shaking reality yeah yeah it is it is it um it's a real it's a real problem on so many levels it's hard to even kind of make any headway on it because you know I find this I was listening to a podcast with Sam Harris you know, a while back about a month or so ago and he was saying that, and he was talking to somebody that was big on um, what social media is doing to us that we're not even aware of mm. and and part of it I mean there's a whole bunch of it I mean it's a huge thing but yeah, no doubt. One of the things, and this is Sam Harris, you know, a neuroscientist, he's no dummy, and he reads a lot, like like we both do. Like I, I just can't stop reading his anything that anything that uh that, that's my addiction is just getting the New York Times book review and gosh, ordering three or four out of each one. But he was saying that his attention he's found his attention span shrinking, his ability to stay yeah. focus on a complex text. He said, if that's happening with me, <laughs> with Sam, you yeah. know, and I, I was thinking about it, I'm like, man, same thing for me. I I can't concentrate. Like when I was an undergrad, good grief, I would sit for, uh, you know, hours and, and just read and read and read. And now 
man, an hour is, is a high watermark. If I can sit and focus for an hour, I still read, you know, two, three hours a day. But if that's happening with people who love to read and read widely, I can only imagine, like, I have family members that just, I don't, for whatever reason, I mean, it's not intelligence. It's just they don't have the patience to read or, or maybe they're scared to read stuff that might challenge something they they hold as, as, a, as a non-negotiable. But if you can just let go of all of the quote-unquote non-negotiables, then reading becomes absolutely fascinating. I mean, I don't. I, when I was in my doctoral program, I was working on this idea of closed versus versus open hermeneutics, and it's just kind of a metaphor for if you approach a text thinking you already have it all figured out, then what are you doing even reading a text? It, I mean, you're just using it to prop up some sort of schema that you've already decided upon, which would be a closed sort of reading, and it. it can happen with any text really uh, versus being open. Just every, every time you open a page, think this may show me that I've been completely wrong. And, uh, and that's great. Cause that's the only way you grow and learn is just go, well, that was half baked idea I had most of my life, <laughs> but, um, but I don't think a lot, I mean, you know, that's kind of threatening that there's something about, you know, we think we're wrong. We think everything's wrong, you know, and that slips into that dualism of, oh, no, if it's not yeah, exactly. absolute 100 percent indubitable truth, then, oh, no, I have no foundation and the world is spinning. And, you know, that, that kind of comes from that seminary mindset that we had. Yeah, totally. I think that that represents that kind of sort of protective insular culture. I mean, that's one aspect of it is at some point I need to come to the right answer on something. Is this book you're recommending to me going to give yeah, me the right answer yeah. or not? Instead of like, you know, yeah, check this out. It's going to, it'll stretch you or it'll, it'll challenge some of the yeah. ways you think that that's a different posture, or I should say it's a different posture to say, you know, I'm on a, I'm on a process of growth over a lifetime and I'm looking for just new angle. I want to hit, be hit with something from a sure. new angle. That's, you know, a posture on one side. On the other side, it's like I need to make sure I get all the right information yeah. in my head, which is just going to make you right. frightened. And I don't know. I think that there's at, there's something about certain news sources, and I'm thinking like of Fox News or a lot of sources in the conservative media ecosystem that that offer that intuitively to people that consume yeah. it. Like we're going to give you the right position on topic X or whatever and make you feel right. like when we've delivered that to you, now you, 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 you belong to right. the group. That's right. Definitely. You know what I mean? Definitely. There's, you know, it, it's again, it's the return to a simple answer to a, you know, what we call wicked problems. Now, I don't know if you've heard that term. Yeah. It's a, no. it's, it's kind of a sexy term and, complexity studies, a wicked problem is basically um, a, a com it, it's a it's a problem that is extremely difficult or impossible to solve due to, you know, all kinds of incomplete, contradictory, changing requirements. And there's no single solution. Mm -hmm. So things like stock markets and, you know, these are wicked problems, even even dealing with a pandemic, um, because it's not you don't just have. A, oh, oh, here's the answer right here. Just just eat this. And, and, and all goes away. It is vastly com 
complicated and there may not even be a quote unquote solution. There may be better or worse ways to manage it. So, and, and if you're, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's just a lot just feels more explanatory to just have somebody say, well, oh, it's hogwash. This is the way it is. But that, yeah. you know, if, if if you think very deeply at all, it just all crumbles because clearly the world is just unbelievably complicated. And that's, I think that's where conspiracy theories enter into it, too, because they can explain the unexplic- inexplicable, right? <laughs> They've got the answer. Yep. It offers it's simplicity. It's funny because I was reading, uh, Linda sent me an article this morning on um, people who are going to support groups who are bailing out of this QAnon stuff. Either I'll, I'll forward it wow. to you if you want. It's it's a short article. Um, yeah. And uh, and one of the guys, yeah, they're going through, they're like, oh, this is, this is, I've wasted all of this time and energy. And, and now what? Because see, for, for the, for the true believers, Trump yeah. was the Messiah. So, so it's totally. it, it bizarre as that sounds to me. I'm like, oh my goodness. If I was going to pick a Messiah, be a lot <laughs> but they they but he was going to solve everything so when they face a reality like biden won by millions of votes it can't be true because their messiah it, it, he was going to deliver and you know he, he set it all up he just fed it all along the way it's like if i lose it's because it's rigged well so he loses yep. so what's the explanation had to be rigged for, for believers i mean yep there's a logic to it, <laughs> but um, oh, totally. Yeah, this, the the vice of one of these people in this article who was who who just saw right through it, and the emperor has no clothes. And I, I think it'll kind of fizzle. You always have your true believers, but um, I think uh, what we've seen in the last few weeks is just um, you know birth pangs of moving to a new generation. I hope um, not to say we're out of the woods, but. Um, but the advice of this one, no. this one recovering QAnonist, I don't know what else to call him, was uh, get off social media, take deep breaths, and um, pour that energy and internet time into local volunteering and stuff. And I think that's yeah. really wise. Yeah, it is. Yeah, get you know, stop the flow of toxic, right. false information. Yeah, I was listening to something this morning. Uh, this guy was has been listening into these like chat rooms of QAnon people, and like with the progression of January up until January twentieth, like there was all this hope uh, and excitement and like thrill of like, here, well, here's what's gonna happen. No, here's what's gonna happen. Here's what's gonna happen. I mean, just the craziest, jacked up thoughts about yeah. how things are gonna unfold. And then it's like this kind of relentless, mundane progression of actual reality that they right. can't help but witness. And it's like January 20th comes and goes, and there's this incredible deflation and discouragement because it's like, well, what happened? Like, he's gone, right. and there's a new president. Like, you can't help but have to face up yeah. to reality at some point. So there's been mass disillusionment, but not for everybody like some people are still like well no there's there's more to come there's you know there's the true believers that are like yeah. hanging in there there's the fullness of the revelation it's it's a yeah. it's a cult and it's an alternative yeah. like eschatology i was just thinking that nuts. this morning it's just like 
apocalyptic cults, you know, and they've got their leader. It is. And, you know, some of them usually when, when their prophecies fail or they go up in a flash of blazes like Waco, you know, <laughs> but that was as tragic as that. Oh, is. totally. Laugh at it, but just, it, 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 you, you have the people who have a modicum of critical thought are like, oh, gosh, back to ground zero. And then but the true believers are always going to be there. And they and especially they tend to be the ones like you were saying in the dynamics of evangelicalism. If you're vested in something, if your whole website is getting millions of hits, um, man, you got to keep that baby going or you're going to be go drive a forklift yeah. at Home Depot. And that's not near as fun. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, yeah, yeah, exactly. Get get back to the dynamics of bigness and impressiveness, and yeah, once you build that institution, yeah, got to feed the monkey. Well. <laughs> you know, I was thinking there's this other side of it. So, like, on one side are people that prefer simplicity, and they want to hear the they want to hear the right answer. They that they, they don't see themselves on like a journey uh, or a trajectory of growth and expansion of their imaginations. But I was thinking there's like another sort of personality type that just doesn't think that there's a whole lot out there to learn. Like, like for well, people who aren't readers, yeah, you know, it's like, well, right. what's, what's the point? You know, I mean, we're sort we sort of know everything yeah. and to, what's there to, to know. That's to me, that's like the snake swallowing its tail because, because you don't read, you don't think there's that much to learn. Obviously, the more you read, the more, you yeah, like, exactly. Oh, aye, aye, aye. This was way yeah. vast. And I always tell my students, you know, when I go into a new semester, not always maybe, but most of the time I, I say, look, I, I am way, way more ignorant than I am informed. I have a PhD. That yes. Just, that just, that just showed me how much way more. I know. Yeah, yeah. That's just your you, entrance ticket. The more you read and learn, you just humbled by, by so much. And, uh, yeah. See, that's the thing is that I think that there is the impression among some types that for one reason or another without judgment and i'm not saying this dismissively that that yeah. sort of fall into patterns of ignorance there's the assumption that people that are experts or who are scholars right. in that area are right. arrogance but yeah. it's like man when you meet a yep. scholar well most that that know how to stay in their lane and know the area that they're an expert in and they know the areas that they're not experts in it's like my word. I when I when I'm with fellow biblical scholars, yeah. I just want to shut up and listen because, like, right. I know what I don't know. You know, I, I the limits of my knowledge are circumscribed, and the the wildernesses and the national parks of my ignorance are like absolutely vast. It, it's been my experience that the most gracious people are some of my heroes that I've had the privilege to meet. I mean, like, world class, world class scholars, world class athletes. I'm like. Oh boy, but it's great because yes, yeah, seriously, you can appreciate real genius. You can actually appreciate real genius, and that's a beautiful thing. And real beauty in sports, um, and you can just enjoy it. You can just really it, it, it enhances yeah. your 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 depth in in what a beautiful world it can be. You know, yeah, and the, yeah, and the beauty of the pursuit of knowledge. I don't know, man, like the when, when something is explained or mm. captured with words or portrayed so that I can understand it, there's a beauty to that. It's very satisfying. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just almost done with this, uh, mm. this Ann Applebaum book. And she has, 
been sort of a close observer of the development of autocratic states over the last 25 years. And it's just like to see to see it described beautifully. And she writes, it's interesting because she kind of goes in and out of being a scholar, like a journalist scholar, and on the other side, like uh, personal anecdote. So it's really good writing, but also good, like large scale analysis of like the, you know, the big, uh, or maybe the deep architectonic moves, but then also how that all shows mm -hmm. up in relationships and how it, you know, how, the rise of fascistic states right. actually breaks up communities. I don't know. So when I see something described so oh, yeah. well like that, there's well, a beauty to it. Yeah. I mean, it's bad news that's coming, but you know, at least the, the clarity is helpful. Dude, Always. it's so good to talk Always. to you, man. We got to do it again. Tell Linda, uh, give her our best and we'll uh, say hi to Hermes. Athena. And what's the name? What's your other dog? Yeah. I can't borrow those Athena. names from your Greek. People. <laughs> my people yes <laughs> all right man. dude when uh, the smoke clears man we got to hang out all right Peace, yeah man. seriously all right brother love you man see ya